Can we please start taking seats? I think this is um, risking running to be quite a late end if we don't start going soon. So um, there's quite a bit of space left here and there's a bit in the middle block for those still at the back. It might be a long time to stand. Um, for those who've noticed, this is not Mickey Lauther that got into a serious accident and needed facial reconstruction. Um, those who don't know me, I'm Neka van Akorf. I'm um, chair of the PMB, Professional Matters Board, and Mickey asked me to chair the session. Um, thanks, Mickey, for doing the hard work and then leaving this up to me. Um, this session is about ultimately professionalism and professional development, continuing professional development and how that makes a difference. Um, and therefore, um, we want to start by saying, if you don't find something that is valuable enough today, please don't count this as CPD. So um, please lock the doors before anyone leaves. Um, if we do keep going after five, which is how the session was scheduled, then um, Peter suggested that like Saturday work, this should probably count as double time. Um, so um, so this should help from a logging point of view. As you can see, it's quite an impressive panel we've got here. I'm pretty sure that they don't need any introduction, but um, I'll quickly do the talking now to try and avoid interrupting between speeches. Clearly, everyone's uh, probably been influenced to the good, like I have, by contact with um, Peter Doyle. So he clearly needs no introduction. He's done pretty much everything that an actuary could do, I think, and he's going to share quite a bit of how learning and professional development um, has played out in his career. Um, next to him is Francois Marais, which um, is one of the few actuaries that I can say has actually researched ethics and thought about it long and hard, so that's also quite a special thing for an actuary to be able to talk to with confidence. And then at the end, we've got um, the one that um, we've also seen so much of in virtually all guises in the profession. Paul Lewis has done anything that the society could have had value from, um, and currently, clearly, he's the guy running the the professionalism courses, and it'll give us a slant from that point of view as well. So thanks to the three gents. We really appreciate having you here, and without any further talking, I'm going to ask Peter to start. So good afternoon, uh, ladies and gentlemen. It's a great um, pleasure to be here. Um, I have got some slides that are coming up, hopefully, um, shortly, but um, if I can first of all say that I'm going to be talking about uh, my learning experiences, so I hope it's of interest to you, and I know we all learn in very different ways, and um, what I did do in trying to get to a learning experience was actually think through how I learned, which is quite a challenge. I think many of us learn without thinking about it, and so I had to sort of reconstruct in my mind how I learned about various various topics and various situations throughout my life, and uh, particularly as an actuary. So um, I know that could be quite a challenging thing for you to face. It was more challenging for me to present it, so I think we're on fairly equal terms here. That's fine. Um, I'm an actuary, uh, quite proud of it. Um, I did some research on the top um, jobs and professions in the world, and this was the slide that came up. I, I'm not too sure why this particular slide attracted my attention. It's, it, <laughs> I just thought, yeah, that's right. So um, I think they all are professions. They all have people uh, that need to learn throughout their lives. But um, this is the job that I chose, and uh, I've enjoyed doing it. Um, I need to, to, to differ, I think, with Nico. I haven't done everything an actuary can do. There's certainly 
a lot of things that I haven't done, but certainly I've done a fair number of things over the years. Well, they say um, if you're doing a presentation, particularly to a big audience, um, it's quite important if you want to establish rapport, is you must tell people how you're feeling. So um, I thought I'd put up a slide to tell you how I'm feeling. <laughs> um, so th there's a number of ways to interpret this slide. I mean, the first is that 41% um, um, of you um, don't like speaking to a group. Maybe it means 41% of me doesn't like speaking to a group. Uh, maybe it means that 41% um, of, of me um, was not planning to come today, but unfortunately I all came along. Uh, but then you need to also notice down at the bottom that um, I flew here at a great height. So if you add up all of those, about 92% of me is in fear at the moment. So it's, um, we're not doing well. But um, I've got a couple of sub-points around this. The first is about data. We've heard quite a lot about data at this convention. And so I just want to tell you something about data about that slide. I hope you've looked. Can you read the, the reference uh, for this particular list of fears? Um, it's on a website called publicspeaking.com. So I kind of wondered why they would put that on their website. <laughs> um, but obviously they're trying to explain to people it's really important that you learn about public speaking. The other thing to notice is, is that the date of the survey is 1977, so it's probably out of date. Um, and you probably have new fears, maybe fear of technology, maybe fear of war. There's a couple of things that might have emerged since 1977. So my subtext is around data that I've learned uh, as actually, is, obviously data is immensely important, but I really think we should spend much more time trying to understand the data before we spend time modeling the data, and I'll talk about that a bit more. Um, but the main point about this slide is um, I've only in my life had one conversation on my actual um, planning as an actuary and my learning as an actuary, and it was when I qualified. So when I qualified in 1983, and the chief actuary summons me to his office, which, as you can understand, I guess, um, was quite intimidating. So I go up to Jacques de Villiers' office um, up on the ninth floor where you go when you qualify. And so he said to me, well, what do you want to do? Which I was quite surprised about the question. I didn't know that was going to be the question. So I said to him, I'd like to do anything actuarial, but please, I never want to do any public speaking. That was my, that was my, my words to him. And he looked at me and he said, oh, you'll get over that. Um, and that was the entire sum total of my um, uh, learning session um, after I actually became an actuary. And perhaps I have got over some of that fear, but not all of it. So I've shared my feelings with you. The next thing is to share my thinking process with you. And to be really personal about it, this is a, a, a CAT scan of my brain under certain circumstances. So. Um, it is actually quite an interesting um, view of how we think and how we learn. And I quite like a number of the points that it shows you here. The first is that almost certainly all the learning that I've ever had has come from a question. I guess if you're not asking a question, you don't really learn because you might hear information, and we all hear lots of information, and hopefully you might hear some things from us this afternoon. But you only really learn the information if you have a question that you're starting with. So, Almost at all times I've had a question in my mind. Almost at all times I've had a huge gap in my mind. In fact, that gap's a bit small. It's much bigger than that. Uh, because there's always knowledge that you don't have. So that was the first point that I'd like to make about learning. The, the second point that I'd like to make, which is also really important, has been my experience, is that any new learning is integrated with your past learning. So it's like it's this jigsaw puzzle that, unfortunately, it's a never-finished jigsaw puzzle, but anyway. 
um, it does connect. And so as an, actually that's the one helpful thing is as you learn, um, you keep on thinking, well, I can't learn those skills or that's new or that's difficult. But the more you know, the more you can learn new things. Um, I think Michelangelo was um, said to um, have made the statement at the age of 87. He said, I'm still learning. So I'm, I'm hoping that when I'm 87, I'll still be learning. Um, the third thing that I'm told um, that we need to do um, in a session like this is talk about the theory. So this is my only theoretical slide. All the rest, again, will be quite personal. And the theory is that there is um, three um, either strands or pillars of being an actuary or professional, and they're technical, normative, and organizational. Now, I can assure you that when I actually qualified, um, I, don't think these, I don't think this terminology existed. I can't remember if you knew about it, Francois. Um, and certainly I only heard about it very recently, but if I think back, that certainly sums up the areas of um, our thinking processes as an actuary. And I've been involved in using this both uh, working on the new code of conduct for the society, uh, doing some work in the IAA level, and we've used this quite extensively. It comes out in the education syllabus, and they really are very powerful concepts in terms of how you think about being an actuary. And I'll talk about each one of them just briefly in turn. If you want to know more about the theory, there's lots of papers being written on it. Uh, Mickey Lather and co. have got a number, so if you go and look for Mickey's papers on it and follow that, that um, line of thinking, um, there's a lot of, of academic background behind this. It just didn't come out of nowhere. But it really is a really important way to think about how you learn as an actuary. So I'm going to be talking about those three areas just very briefly, and it'll touch on some of the things that I did as an actuary or am doing as an actuary. So the first is I became a valuations actuary. Um, so pretty much in those days, your choice was life or pensions, so I chose life. That's how it goes. <laughs> um, and I became a valuations actuary. Um, first did a few kind of product valuations and then a life fund valuation, and I never got quite to a company valuation. I moved on before that. I quite like this slide and this, this image because it tells you a lot about a valuation. So um, you might not pick it up immediately, but the, the white... Um, uh, the white part of that um, picture is actually ones and zeros at binary code. So, I mean, all valuation work today is done on a computer, so that's binary. Um, it talks about the expanding funnel of doubt, although it's, it's actually discounted, so it's a narrowing funnel of doubt, if you're with me. <laughs> um, it goes around the corner, you can't see what's coming. But certainly, I thought valuations was a really a really good discipline to learn about how to understand uh, the mathematics of insurance and, and many more things that came after that. But I just need to point out that when I'd studied life office practice, we had a net premium valuation, which was at 4%. It was at 4%. Um, and we did a bonus reserve valuation. Um, since then, after that, we did a financial condition report. Uh, we did the financial sinus valuation. We did embedded values. Um, just now, we're working on SAM and on ORSA. So I've just I've covered the whole of life office valuation for the last 30 years. But basically all of those were new developments that have come along. So even though I studied life office valuation, it's changed dramatically since I first um, actually started. So at the moment, my main point of contact is re really learning something about SAM and ORSA. And just because I'm on a board of a life company and I need to understand it. Um, so my main point here is that it is a continuous learning process. But how did it happen? It almost certainly only happens through dealing with other people and actuaries in particular. 
So, you know, I can, I can list a very long list of names of people that have influenced me over the years. But let me just give you one picture just to, 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 um, to kind of illustrate how it happens. Um, in about the late 1980s, early 1990s, I joined, uh, which became LAC. It had a name before that. I don't know what it was. It was maybe the Committee of Actuaries or some strange name. Uh, it's now the Life um, Assurance, Life Actuaries Committee, LAC. And um, so I go to this meeting, um, and uh, there sitting at the boardroom table is uh, Theo Hartwig from Mutual, Jeff Goy from Southern, um, David Knorr from Liberty, J.P. Petouris from Sunlum, uh, Peter Lambrecht from South African Actuarial Consultants, and me. <laughs> um, and, and the boardroom table was this, white, this um, wooden um, polished table. There was no cell phones, no laptops, no iPads, no nothing piece of um, a sheet of paper and a pencil. And, and um, probably the most experienced actuaries in South Africa. And certainly for the first year, I never understood a thing that they said. It was just, they would just talk, the things would just come out and I was just a bit shattered. Um, Trevor Dean was the secretary, he took amazing minutes of the meetings, I go back and read them. And so it took me a long time to even understand what they were talking about. Um, the only sort of breakthrough I had was when we started on the financial soundness valuation. So all of a sudden, we were suddenly working on this new valuation basis. And so um, some of them came up that I knew something about, so I said, I'll do that. And I went away and did some work which, um, I mean, none of you would even notice, but it's probably my kind of proudest actual contribution. If you look at the financial soundness valuation, there's a couple of line items where I know I wrote that <laughs> um, because I knew about that. But I could start to integrate it with the work that I'd done. And that was an amazing learning experience, just listening to these guys, just pour out knowledge. I asked lots of questions, um, and it was a great experience for me at that time. Um, so I'm also just thinking about learning. Uh, the other key point of learning has been through books. I mean, I just read a lot. I guess most of you all do. I don't know if you all read books. So, so these are books. This is a book. <laughs> That's a book. <laughs> um, some of you I know read Kindles. They aren't books. These are books. Um, and the reason why I've got these three years as a matter of interest is that um, I'm obviously working on ORSA at the moment, or working with people working on ORSA. Um, imagine being a life actuary in 1910, doing an ORSA. Um, you're the chief risk officer. Um, in five years' time, there'll be the Great War. In 10 years' time, there'll be the Great Flu Epidemic. In 20 years' time, there'll be the Great Crash um, of 1929 and 1930. Um, I doubt any also in 1910 even thought about that. They probably were talking about the risks of flying in these new things called aircraft um, and various things that I'm probably uh, aren't even on the radar screen now. So why do I mention that? Well, there's a book called The Great Influenza, which I read about the 1918 flu, uh, 19 flu epidemic, which is probably the best book I've ever read on an epidemic. It's an amazing book in terms of explaining how epidemics work. And that became quite useful um, when we worked on the HIV and AIDS epidemic. Um, there's a book on the Great Crash 1929 by John Kenneth Galbraith, which I really recommend you read now. I mean, it's just such an amazing insight into how things can go wrong, what happens, but also the people dynamics. And so they're quite fascinating. And then, of course, uh, Black Swan, I think many of you would have read now, is quite a modern version of that. Um, but those are all things that are really helpful just to read... Um, and contextualize with what you're doing. And I've always um, found that an important way of learning. 
So that deals with more technical thing called valuations. Um, I just want to talk uh, maybe for five minutes on HIV and AIDS. Um, and as you know, <clears throat> um, I we did some modeling on that in the 1980s and 90s. And perhaps just to mention a few points, um, and why I think I'd like to talk about this is that this is, well, at that time, certainly was a wider field type of development. So when I started doing some work on HIV and AIDS modeling, it wasn't a known field of practice, um, I can assure you. Um, and so, um, with respect to actuaries at that time, I didn't learn much from actuaries because it just wasn't a known uh, field of practice and topic. Um, and so I learned, I guess, a lot of information from other people outside the actual um, insurance sphere. Um, and um, just to explain again how that worked, um, I met um, through, in fact, the actuary that influenced me the most was Douglas Kerr from Swiss Re. Um, he, he had a great insight into the epidemic and uh, you know, supported me a lot in the work that we did. But he introduced me to Ruben Scher, who was probably the leading doctor at that time in research in South Africa on HIV and AIDS. And um, I'll never forget a moment when, um, when, when we went to go and see uh, Ruben at his office in Hillbrow, South African Institute of Medical Research. And we said to him, um, um, we asked him a question about the age profile of AIDS cases in South Africa. I think eight. I think it was age, um, and he said, I don't know. And he, he opened his drawer and he pulled out all the AIDS cases in South Africa. It was about 15 or 16 of them. And he went through them and he said, you know, these are the ages. Um, and that was the first time we had actually understood that there was any data available in South Africa. And uh, that started a long relationship where we then started to put some of that data on spreadsheets and keep data for him. and all um, just purely demographic data, no names and, and detail. And then from that, he then said, oh, but you must go and see Ron Ballard, who's the professor of um, sexually transmitted diseases at the Witts uh, Medical School, um, who taught me more about sexually transmitted diseases than I wanted to know. <laughs> 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 but uh, he explained to me about cofactors and about data, about the enormous amount of data available on STDs. Um, from there, we went to the National Institute of Virology. Uh, we saw... Uh, Professor Barry Schub, who was a leading epidemiologist at the time. And, and from him, we learned a germ of truth about risk profiles and risk groups. Um, and I can go on for, through many names uh, and places um, in South Africa. And that took about a year. So for about a year, all I did was meet people, uh, just amazing people, um, who had data, some who didn't have data. And that was my two main types of questions. Have you got data and have you modeled the epidemic? So they all said, yes, we have data, but no, we haven't modeled it. So I said, well, we can model it. So that became an iterative kind of process. Um, the other big advantage that I had in those days, there was no internet, big advantage. I had to go and see people. Um, the second big advantage, I didn't have a laptop or a computer, so I couldn't model anything anyway. So uh, My secretary had a laptop. So at night, um, Donald Miller and I used to write some programs, and we'd run it overnight on her laptop. She used it for typing, and at night we used it for AIDS modeling. But it took about 10 hours to run one scenario for 20 years. So 10 hours, you could work out the maths, we could run it overnight. Um, and that's how we developed the AIDS modeling. Uh, but of course, what became iterative there, the more we did the modeling, the more data we got, the more people spoke to us, and that was an amazing learning experience. So, so that was how, I guess, how Newfield actually works. I mean, you start small, you talk to people that know more than you, um, and you learn a lot. And that was a fantastic way to learn about that 
very, very difficult and complex issue. I won't go into the ethical side of it. Uh, you know, there was, you know, you can talk about ethics, uh, Francois. I mean, it was just a complete minefield. The reason why we started modeling as a matter of interest, I just want to mention this, is that so the South African life insurance uh, industry, when we heard about HIV and AIDS, I say we, um, said the only solution is exclusion clauses, and they put on a blanket exclusion clause on all life policies for HIV and AIDS. Uh, and our particular company said, well, we think that's unethical. So we said, well, if it's unethical, then you must price for it and reserve for it. If you're going to price for it and reserve for it, you must have a mortality basis. If you need a mortality basis, you must model it. So that's how we started the AIDS modeling. So that's a, just a diversion into ethics, <laughs> where it can take you. So on the normative side, um, just very briefly, normative is basically ethics and communication. Um, I didn't know which to talk about, but I knew Francois was talking about ethics. <laughs> so I'm going to talk about communication. Um, if I had were to do one thing over again, I know that's a futile exercise, but I probably would have spent more effort on communication skills because um, I think actuaries are by and large ethical, actuaries are by and large technical, and actuaries are by and large bad communicators, uh, including myself. And as I said, I, I never wanted to speak in front of a crowd. I'm glad you're not a crowd. <laughs> um, you're a group of fellow actuaries. But, um, you know, it struck me again this morning, I attended one of the sessions this morning where somebody was talking about how you communicate complex choices um, to people. And I think that's the one thing we haven't done well at. And I include myself and not all of you, I'm sure some of you do it really well, but by and large we don't um, do well in terms of communicating what we know in a way that the other person understands it. So if you look at this slide, I mean, there's... Um, you talking, they talking, you've got concepts, they've got concepts, there's different language, there's different timelines. And when I talk to actuaries, I notice that we can slip in and out of timelines very easily. We talk about a number now, you talk about a discounted value, you talk about a future value, you talk about a probable value, and we can have this great conversation and we understand each other. Um, but if you're talking to somebody who's not an actuary, it's not their fault, it's our fault, they don't understand many of the concepts that we're using. Just conceptually, we just not able to put it across, and I would think that's a very f uh, fruitful area to spend more time as actuaries to learning how to communicate what we know and what we do, um, so that it's of benefit to um, our, our, um, our stakeholders. So that's the one area that I think um, you know, we can improve a lot on. So um, I'm nearly done. So the organizational side is pretty obvious. I qualified um, as a fellow member of the Faculty of Actuaries. Um, by one subject, it would have been the Institute, because <laughs> uh, I wrote both exams simultaneously, and I, I, I ran out of subjects at the faculty first. <laughs> um, I had one left at the Institute, which was general insurance, um, but I chose not to go that route because they had introduced this thing called an experience requirement. <laughs> and I thought, you know, I'll be darned. I've been writing all these exams. I'm not going to wait another year to become an actuary. So, which is quite weird, really, because um, I think it's such an important part of your life is your experience. Um, but there it is. Um, so the actual Society of South Africa has been a great place um, to meet, meet other people, to share ideas. It's been a great learning experience. Just the one thing that I will say about it is my experience has been, and I really encourage you to become involved, but I, I, my experience has really been being involved means doing things. It doesn't mean being on a committee. So my earlier description was I was on, on the LAC committee for a year, and I never learned to think because I didn't understand what was going on. I only started to understand when I started doing something. And then you start getting into some sort of mechanism where there's a feedback loop and a learning loop. 
Um, and the same is happening now. I'm involved in the IAA, the International Actual Association, uh, which is, again, a completely different and new ballpark and new learning experience. Um, but it certainly creates a lot of substance to the work that we do as actuaries that we have an organizational component to what we do. And don't underestimate it. Is, it is really important. And um, as I said, I think I've learned as much from those three organizations as I've learned in my working space um, throughout my um, working life. So um, where does that get me to? Just a very simple um, example of how I think I think. And you might not think like this, which is fine. Um, and um, it might look like an actuarial control cycle. <laughs> um, it wasn't meant to be, but that's just how it came out. So basically, you know, I've done lots of different things. Um, and just the way that my mind works, I always say, well, what's next? And it just happens to be what's next. So I've never had this long-term plan. People have said to me, what's your long-term plan? Or what was your long-term plan? I never had a long-term plan. I had a next plan. <laughs> so what's next? Um, do I know anything about it? Must I learn anything about it? So there's a little bubble there called think. Um, I think that's a often underestimated part of the learning process, <laughs> is thinking. So just think about what you know, what you don't know, maybe how you should tackle it, etc. And then there's a very iterative process, which I experienced was ask, read, as I told you, and, and learn, and listen. So, I mean, that's a, a kind of an iterative, it's not a, a simple cycle that you see here. It just goes kind of back and forth. Then you do the work, then you pass it on. And the big advantage of passing it on, that's when you learn the most. So by passing it on, you literally mean you're telling other people about it, or you literally passing on the work. It also creates the space to have a next if you, if you don't pass it on, there's no next. So that's fairly um, self-explanatory. So, um, Mickey, that's my contribution to the academic literature of learning cycles. <laughs> and uh, it's not patented at all. So my simple question to you is, what are you planning to learn next? Thank you very much, Nico. <laughs> Now we're going to do something a little bit interesting for all the left brains here, which is most of us. Um, please cue the music. We want to give you a moment to just sit there and think. Reflect on what Peter's just shared and your own life and where you are with your own development. What is it that's next? What is it that you need to think about? And what of this can you apply on your own? And we'll just have a bit of music. Are you guys ready? Cool.
That was very alternative. Um, I, must tell you, I must just tell you that Peter Doyle spoke without any notes. So imagine how good that would have been if he actually did some communication training earlier in his life. <laughs> uh, I need some notes. Um, well, just by a... You can't use the app. Maybe you can just wave your cell phones in the air. Just by a show of hands. How many of you actually read the pa the, my paper? It's a paper on ethics, so you shouldn't be lying. <laughs> okay. Um, and how many of you actually believe that we as actuaries should be doing something more about ethics? Again, show cell phones. Wow, okay. <laughs> Seems to me my, my work here is done. Um, reminded of the, the shortest, most effective speech by Dr. Masters, the sex expert, who was asked to give a brief speech, and he stood up and he said, Ladies and gentlemen, it gives me great pleasure. And then he sat down again. <laughs> so, uh, uh, I'm not that fast. I'm going to need at least 20 minutes. Um, but uh, to start off with, just um, to, gi to give you some uh, my credentials, I qualified uh, in 1980, 35 years ago. I think many of you weren't even born then. Uh, and at that stage, there was no professionalism course. I think we had about 200 actuaries in the country, and we certainly didn't have the capacity for such a luxury. But eventually, the professionalism course came, and about 10 years ago, I actually took part in presenting it, and I actually quite enjoyed it. And I mean, as for the, for the students, uh, I mean, you get sponsored for a, a two-day retreat to a Lani venue like the Spear, uh, and you've got to listen to a few uh, presentations and take part in a few intellectual discussions and you eat the fancy food and you drink the glassy wine and at the end of two days you get a certificate that says you're a professional actuary. Voila! Uh, how enjoyable is that? Um, I always thought that it was, a, it was enjoyable but it was, it was a bit light. And particularly as far as ethics concerned, I mean, we're talking about professionalism in general here, but I'm honing in just on the, on the ethics. I thought it was, was not really sufficient. So um, I believe that the, the new actuarial professional practice program, the APP that was launched this year, is a great improvement. And I must really congratulate Mickey and Paul and everybody else who's been involved in the development of that. Uh, to really teach actuaries normative skills, including the communication skills that Peter referred to. Uh, now really includes a, a number of uh, normative skills that you'll be trained in, that new actuaries will be trained in, communication skills, business management skills, even life skills, that were not previously part of the professionalism course. Um, but it seems to me that the ethics content is very much the same as it has been. So um, I thought that this time of developing the new uh, APP course was, was actually a good opportunity to look at what, we, at what we're doing at Ethics and whether we should be doing anything more. So uh, I thought that I should get involved. And I visited the Ethics Department at Stellenbosch and asked them whether they could maybe help me to sort of put together a, a nice ethics presentation that one could use. 
<laughs> and I was told in no uncertain terms by the Dean, uh, Professor uh, Anton van Niekerk, for those of you from Old Mutual, old ones from Old Mutual, he's the brother of Gerard van Niekerk. Um, he told me that ethics is a 2,500 year old discipline. We can't help you, you know nothing. <laughs> so uh, then he talked me into enrolling, and I mean, that is, to come back to what Peter was saying, um, what next? He took me into enrolling for the MPhil in Applied Ethics. <laughs> and I'm half year through that now, halfway through that, not half year, halfway. I still have to do the uh, thesis next year. And actually this paper doubled up as, an, as one of my assignments, uh, which was very neat. Um, <laughs> so to, to some extent, I'm actually trying to get feedback from you whether I'm wasting my time there. Um, so, why should we teach, teach ethics? Um, ethics has always been very important uh, in business, uh, but it's really gained some um, formal status recently. Uh, the Companies Act of 2008 now requires that all boards of all listed companies must have an ethics subcommittee. Um, and I think as a profession, we must take notice of these developments and I mean, many of our members will end up on board uh, eventually. Um, there's a very eloquent quote on, on ethics in my paper for those who've actually read it. <laughs> there is, you can look at it later, on why we should be teaching ethics. This is from 1960. He was the... Rector of Harvard uh, University, um, or President of Harvard University, but uh, here are more, two more profound quotations. Uh, the first is from Paul Tillich, he's a German professor, a German philosopher from the previous, from the last century. Goodness without knowledge is weak, and knowledge without goodness is dangerous. And then there's another quote. Also from a guy named Paul, we don't know his surname. How then can they believe if they have not heard? And how can they hear without somebody teaching them? Uh, it's Romans 10 verse 14, that's from the Bible in case you didn't notice. Um, so I thought that you know, it's quite hard to, maybe quite hard to convince the, the profession with a few quotes that we should be doing something more about teaching ethics. And I thought that one approach would be to consider what other professions do in these terms and, and maybe challenge our, prof our profession with that. Um, we don't want the accountants to be better than us, do we? Um, so my um, research is not uh, fairly limited, but it, it did show that uh, the professions that I actually looked at all do more about teaching ethics than we do. The, um, the doctors are by far the most proactive and they've been teaching ethics um, for, for, for many years. Uh, and this is under the strong proactive guidance by the Health Professional Council of South Africa. Um, they, they've established medical ethics and bioethics centers at most of the big universities at the medical schools. 
They've got dedicated professors teaching only ethics, and they draw in all of the other professors to come and assist in the ethics. They've written dedicated handbooks. They've really been at it. At the Stellenbosch University, they uh, have a th uh, an introductory course in the second and in the third year, and then in the fifth year, they have a three-week block, a three-week dedicated module. Uh, so they spend more than 80 hours in total on actually teaching ethics formally. Uh, the accountants, they're the most prescriptive by far. They've got a big, thick manual to tell, you exact, to tell the universities exactly what they require. Um, SAICA, uh, the South African Institute of Chartered Accountants, uh, drive that. They've got a detail, what they call a competency framework, that prescribes the curriculum in, in detail for a compulsory seminar or semester course in business ethics. Um, and the course covers all the uh, normative ethical theories. It covers uh, all the uh, business ethics issues on the uh, macro level, on the business level, on the management level. And then it goes into a number of ethical issues, specifically accounting ethical issues. Also, uh, handbooks available for that. Um, and they spend, that course covers about 40 hours. Uh, the engineers are less prescriptive, they're more easygoing. Um, they define a number of uh, educational outcomes in general, and in one of, those out out of one of the ten outcomes, ethics, the word ethics sort of appears there. So uh, um, what is interesting is that the, the council is less uh, involved, and the, the compliance by the universities is also therefore uh, more sketchy. Uh, the UCT uh, don't seem to be doing anything. They say that the students can take an elective in, in ethics if they want to, but they don't require anything. Uh, Stellenbosch University have ethics included in the, in, as part of the course, and they spend about 20 hours on that. So it's from 80 to 40 to 20 hours. And then we come in, if you take our professionalism course as it was, we came in in less than 10 hours that we actually spent on formally teaching ethics. Uh, the lawyers, <laughs> uh, they don't teach ethics. <laughs> they don't teach ethics at all in the LLB course. But, uh, but then if you, want to become, if you want to join the bar, become uh, a bar member, you've got to uh, what they call take pupillage uh, with an advocate. That's a, a euphemism for slave labor. You don't, get, you don't get paid. They say, at, at least you don't have to pay us for that. You get it for free. You get work for them for a year, and then they take you through the ropes, and then they really teach you all their rules and ethics. So they take direct control of it. They don't leave it to the universities. Um, no, missed that one. Covered that one. Okay, so what what can we learn from, from the other professions? I think that we can learn, or we should learn, that the governing bodies are seriously involved. And the more that the governing bodies are involved, the better the outcome uh, is. Uh, I don't think ASA has any requirements for ethics to be included in the, in the uh, university courses, at least. Um, the, the, the doctors and the accountants and the engineers when they 
delegate all their training to universities, so they also delegate all the ethics training that there should be to the universities. The lawyers take that in-house and they do that part themselves. Um, but then, I think that you really need sufficient time. I know that um, time, uh, quantity of time is not necessarily a guarantee of quality, but I think it's fair to say that enough time is, a, if it's not a, a sufficient condition, at least, at least it's a necessary condition if you want to achieve anything. Um, so, if we, whoops. Um, there we are. <laughs> Misled one of my notes. Um, so if we just briefly look at, at ethics, uh, I mean, I know a little more now than I knew then, but um, we, we normally, I mean, science is the study of what is. Ethics is the study of what ought to be. It's the question of what is good and bad, what is right and wrong. And there are no clear answers. Um, so and ethics can be divided into three fields, uh, meta-ethics, normative ethics and applied ethics. Um, Meta-ethics, in meta-ethics the question is, what is the meaning of good? And this is really um, on a different level and this is best left to the, to the academics, the, the actual meaning of uh, ethical vocabulary. Uh, and uh, um, there's a, <laughs> a very good story that I uh, told many years ago when I was still at Varsity. There was a visiting professor who went around to different universities and he came to, Stiller, uh, to UCT first and he said, good morning class. And the intellectual class, they immediately questioned him, what do you actually mean by the word good? What, is it, what do you mean if you say it's a good morning? That was on the level of metaethics. Then the, the guy went to Wits uh, uh, and he said, good morning class. And he was attacked by this, these angry students who said, how on earth can you say it's a good morning if you look at all the social injustice of the apartheid outside? Um, and um, then he came to Stellenbosch and he said, morning class, and nobody said a word. And some of them consulted their dictionaries and all of them made a note. <laughs> um, if you come to normative ethics, the question there is, how do we decide what is good? What actions are good? How do you, having this come to terms of what the word means, how would you now decide what is good? Now, if you're a, a religious person or a Christian like I am, it's fairly easy. We, we believe that God tells, us, God tells us what is good, and we just have to listen. But I mean, ethics is not only limited to religion, so each person must find his own uh, uh, framework to decide what is good and what is bad. So this is where normative ethics come into, into being. And you get, basically get three types of normative ethics theories. In any act you will get, you can get three aspects. It's the act itself, it's the consequences of the act, and it's the agent committing the act. And then you get theory, sort of focusing, theories focusing on each of these uh, aspects. Uh, the rule-based theories, uh, the fancy word for that is deontology. Um, look at the act itself. The act is intrinsically good or bad. 
and, and all religious uh, ethical theories are basically rule-based. Um, if you look at, if you listen to Immanuel Kant with his, uh, oh, heavy word, uh, word uh, the categorical imperative, uh, he will tell you, he argues that lying is always wrong, even if you're lying to the Gestapo about the Jews in your cellar. You must never lie. Um, then if you come to the, the second class, utilitarian uh, theory, uh, they tend to focus at the on the consequences of the act. If the consequences are good, then the act is good. Uh, so the end justifies uh, the mean. Um, that means that when, uh, what you do should improve the, should make the world a better place. It should have good consequences. It should make people happier. So you, you should really lie to your wife about your affair because that will, that will the, the alternative will really not improve their general happiness. <laughs> so, and then if you come to virtue ethics, where uh, those of you who have uh, read anything about Anthony Asher will get to that a bit later, uh, virtue ethics look, look at the agent actually performing the act and, and uh, says that our acts must show the virtues, the four cardinal virtues of of wisdom and temperance and uh, justice uh, and courage, your acts must show virtue uh, irrespective of the outcome. Um, so you should rather not have an affair than you don't have to lie about it. And then we get to applied ethics. Uh, this is where business ethics and bioethics come in. In a specific situation, no matter what your ethical framework is, you must now decide in a specific situation what is the what is the right thing to do here? Um, and uh, this is really uh, a part, much of what... So we will look at normative ethics and applied ethics if we want to develop anything here for, 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 for our profession. Then... Yes, can I just have some more? If we could agree, if we would agree that we should be teaching actuaries ethics, we must then decide what do we really want to achieve? Do we want to teach them ethics or do we want to teach them about ethics? Uh, do we want to teach actuaries to be more ethical? Uh, to, this is on the normative ethics level really and, and what the textbooks will say, teach them behavioral competence. Or do we want to teach them to know more about ethics? Um, it's business ethics, to know all the different business ethics issues that um, textbooks would call that cognitive competence. Or both, my personal favorite. If you want to do it, we should do a bit of, probably do a bit of both. Um, I think, the, the, the difference between being ethical and knowing about ethics is a bit like a road map. Uh, having a road map. Being ethical is like having a sense of direction. But if you don't have a road map, you can still get uh, lost fairly easily. Um, having a knowledge of ethics is, is like having that road map. But if you don't have a sense of direction, you won't be able to really follow the roadmap. So you, you, you actually need both. You need 
to be ethical and you need to have a knowledge of, of, of ethical issues. So I really think we should be doing both. Um, I think, agree with, uh, with Peter again, I think most of us have been brought up with uh, a fairly strong moral ethical background. I think if somebody is really unethical, no amount of ethical teaching or training is going to change that. Um, but if you have strong values, uh, then um, to know more about ethics uh, as, a, as an actuary, uh, to know more about the normative ethics theories, uh, to be exposed to case studies to develop your ethical thinking, and then actually to, to, to get insight into the, some of the serious ethical issues uh, in business uh, is really, um, can be very valuable, valuable for, for, for actuaries to have. I think um, the doctors have a bit of an edge on us. They really need roadmaps. Uh, they have serious life and death ethical issues in, in their profession, just to, to list a few. Um, I mean, termination of pregnancy, euthanasia, genetic testing, stem cell research, cloning. I mean, the list just goes on and on. These are life and death ethical issues, and, and no, no amount of being ethical is going to tell you how to, how to handle these. And people with two doctors with very different, both being very ethical, can have very different opinions on something like euthanasia. Uh, so there, there, there's really serious ethical issues, but even in their profession as well, um, issues like canvassing patients, preserve uh, perverse incentives, over-servicing. Uh, and if you look at the ethics scores that they provide the um, as medical students, they cover all of these aspects in depth. Uh, it's really impressive. Um, for uh, for the actuarial profession, I don't think the ethical issues here is so, so, so re seriously life and death issues. Uh, if we look at the um, curriculum that the accountants use, if we want to teach ethics, we could really learn a lot from the accountants and basically almost copy their business ethics um, uh, curriculum. Uh, just cut out the accounting bit at the end. Um, <laughs> but um, there are um, there are still uh, uh, the the business ethic issues on the on the macroeconomic level, things like wealth and poverty. We all just accept that the free market. Uh, is the right approach. Uh, competition uh, will, will uh, ensure that, that uh, everything goes right. And, and, and if you go into, if you really study business ethics, you will start questioning some of these assumptions that we just accept without thinking about that. On a business level, we'll discuss things like the model agency of a corporation. Does a corporation actually have a conscience? Can you keep, can you hold a corporation morally responsible for, for its actions. I know you can keep it legally responsible, but can you have it, keep it morally responsible? Uh, the, the debate on shareholder versus stakeholder interest, um, are, we, are we here to, as, as corporations, are we here to make shareholders rich, or are we here to improve society, make, to make society better? Uh, if you look at, at the American way, they're still seriously on the, or quite largely on the, on the Milton Friedman, the business of business is business, and it's to maximize profits. Uh, whereas Europe is much more towards the, 
the stakeholder theory where a company exists for all its stakeholders, of which one happens to be the, the, the shareholders. Uh, corporate social responsibility, the question of do the management actually have a right to, to spend shareholder money on charity? And they actually have a right to decide that. Um, and then issues like uh, on a management level, whistleblowing, uh, employment equity, and then something which I've been reading on the, the almost obscene uh, levels of, of, of executive remuneration that we start seeing in, 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 in businesses that was not unfortunately there <laughs> when I was there a number of years ago. <laughs> So knowing about these issues will certainly make, better, make our actions better educated, more well-rounded, but I'm not sure whether we can actually argue that they're sort of really essential to have, they nice to have. Uh, I think to the extent that many actions will, will end up on becoming business leaders, I think it becomes more essential for, him, for them to actually have this kind of background. Um, I did not really do much research on what other countries do, uh, there was not much to learn. The, the, institute and, uh, the UK Institute and Faculty of Actuaries, they own it hardly qualifies as ethic light. They, um, they have a one-day one professionalism skills course. Or you can do it face-to-face, -face, or you can have an eight-hour online session. Uh, and then they've got this beautiful, on their website, this beautiful statement that says, it uses discussions and case studies to explore concepts of professionalism, awareness, of the actuary's code, and of business ethics. I mean, just think how wonderful that we, if our government were to explore the concepts of providing electricity and water. Um, so they, they don't do much yet. Uh, then I contacted Anthony Asher. It was quite uh, uh, pleasant surprise to find that the, that the South African actually operating in Australia, sort of one of the leading lights there, and um, he, was present, he presented a paper on ethics uh, in May to the uh, Actuarial Institute. Uh, the, the, the Australians have a bit of a problem. They actually called the Institute of Actuaries in Australia, but that is IAA, and that is the same acronym as the International uh, Actuarial Institute. So then they changed it to AI, the Actuarial Institute, but in my, in my world of dog breeding, AI is artificial in, insemination. So <laughs> that really didn't, didn't work for me. But I mean, that's down under, what can you expect? So, Anthony presented this paper, and, and, and he, he's a strong believer in virtue ethics. He, he believes to teach behavioral competence. He wants to create, to make actuaries, young actuaries, more ethical. He wants to develop the moral basis that they have, that they probably, uh, hopefully, came in with from home, and then he wants to develop that. Uh, and he's actually a strong believer in that. And he, he wrote a book, uh, he's just published the book, Working Ethically in Finance, and he's got a set of case studies that, go, that go, uh, uh, goes with the book. And he's been introducing this uh, at uh, the University of, North, New, University of New South Wales, I think that's it, uh, where, he, where he teaches. Uh, but he, I asked him, how did it go at the, at, at the convention? And he said, no, uh, ethics is only part of CPD there. So maybe it's still work in progress, but he still seems to be a lone voice in the, in the wilderness. 
Um, so, to come to the end of it, I think if you want to say, all right, we've, we shouldn't be doing anything more, what we're doing is enough. Let's, let's look at possible reasons that we can say for what we're doing is enough. And I think we must also uh, <laughs> make sure that you don't have excuses masquerading as reasons. Uh, there's a difference between a reason and an excuse. I have a headache, it's never a reason. Uh, you just came home from, from golf too late that night. So if, if something is important to you, you will, you will find a way. And if it's not important to you, you'll find an excuse. So um, our first reason for, for not, not doing more may be that we say, well, uh, we don't really have that many ethical problems. We've never had serious ethical problems. Uh, the actuaries are, we, we're too honest. We, um, we, um, I don't think that will fly. I, I, I believe that we've recently had an incident with 20, uh, 20 or so young actuarial students who made the terrible mistake of actually cheating on, a, on an online uh, exam. And, and they really need guidance uh, uh, not to do that kind of stupid thing again. So... Um, and we can say, well, we actuaries are actually very clever. You can't teach us much. You know, we, we, we're too clever. Uh, well, uh, I found out when, when I went to Varsity that, Varsity again, uh, that I'm not too clever. And, and, and my favorite saying on, in this regard is that people, people who think they know everything can be very annoying to us who do. Then, then we can say, well, actually, our job is too easy. We don't have all these ethical issues like the doctors. I mean, they really need it. But our job is, is, is fairly easy. We, we're okay. We, uh, we don't have so many ethical issues uh, to deal with. Uh, and to some extent, it may be true, but, I mean, there are really very many ethical issues in our job. And the one that I plan to write my thesis on next year, when I get around to it, is um, discrimination in underwriting. I mean, for, for 100 rand a month, the life insurance industry offers 40,000 rand funeral cover to an unskilled laborer, or a million rand of life cover to a professional female. So the, the young, rich, white lady gets 40 times, or 25 times, of the same uh, product for, for, for the same amount of money as the the poor, uneducated black laborer. And, um, and we can statistically justify it, uh, but I mean, how can we actually ethically justify it? And I mean, I'm going to try because I mean, that will justify what I've been trying to justify what I've been doing for the last 20 years. So um, there are really serious ethical issues in, in our um, uh, profession. Then we can say that. And this is a, 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 really, a really valid excuse, I think, reason. Uh, we don't have the time. The actual course, and I spoke to some of the, um, uh, my, my, some of the, the, the colleagues from the universities, and they say that the actual course is, is so full already, uh, they, they don't really see where they can actually fit this in if it's not that essential. So that's the, that's the too busy argument. 
Um, and I think, again, when we, say, when we decide how important we think this is really, it really is for us, uh, in terms of, of too busy, uh, I can just say as somebody who's already brought up kids, and I'm sort of bringing up grandchildren now, to all of you, and I think most of you, are probably uh, working too hard and spending too little time with your kids. You're too busy. Uh, you must be very careful about that. Um, and apply it to this issue. You can, uh, the, the nice quote is, you can pretend to care, but you can't pretend to be there. Uh, so if we really care, we should, we should be doing something about this. And then the last one is, we can be too cynical and just say, I mean, and there is a view that teaching ethics does not really help. Uh, and there's this quote from, from uh, uh, somebody who taught ethics at the Harvard Business School. Uh, she said, but I, the question is, can people be taught? I'm not sure. They, she was not talking about people in general. She was talking about MBA students. <laughs> and she said, I began to wonder if it is even ethical to try and teach the subject. Uh, I got the impression that it's, it's almost like sending your, your child who smoked a little dope to rehab. I mean, he's going to pick up many extra uh, knowledge there which he, which he shouldn't have done. So, <laughs> so um, but I think my appeal to, to the profession is that we should really take this seriously. We should really think about this seriously. We should not just, I mean, if we then decide we're doing enough, we don't need to do more, we don't have the time, whatever, let it be an informed decision. Let it not just be the, the default option. Uh, let we decide on it. And I think that the, uh, um, the ESSA board should probably take the lead in this and, and, and make a decision, decide whether we should be doing anything more about this. Um, the show of hands initially showed that there was... Um, a lot of agreement in this room at least. Then, I think that case studies, um, uh, teaching actually is to be more ethical, can easily be worked into, um, into the technical courses. I think uh, we can learn a lot from Anthony Asher, we can use his book, we can... Uh, uh, and I don't think this should be left to the universities to do it on their own. I think the, it should, be, should come from the profession with strong guidance in this guard and uh, guidelines and then also guidance and, and, and work together. That is something I certainly think that we can do. Then an introductory course in ethics, I think it can be very helpful to give context. Uh, Anthony Ash also argues that you should have that initially so that people sort of know what it's about, just uh, get some feeling for the normative ethics theory. Um, the accountants have uh, their doubts about the value of that. They, they think it's the, the, the first and second year students uh, are not susceptible to it. Uh, maybe the actuaries are cleverer, I don't know. Um, then, but then I do think that we should seriously consider the structured course in business ethics. Um, and we can either do it if if the universities can find the time included in the honours course or the fourth year. Uh, if not, then we should seriously look at, at doing it uh, as part of the APP. But then it's not a one-day or two-day uh, event. It must really be a, a solid uh, business ethics course. 
This is not just training like presentation skills training. It's, it's an education uh, that's required. Um, and we can certainly include ethics in the CPD uh, for the older actuaries who, who missed out <laughs> and who need some guidance. Uh, that may be helpful. Uh, and then lastly, uh, we can certainly also get professional help from Ethics SA. I've come to know a number of the, of the people there. And this is what they do. They, they go around to uh, corporations and organizations wherever, and they help you to become more ethical and to teach ethics. Um, so, okay, thank you. <laughs> Is that a drink for everyone, Nico? Nice. Okay, um, I appreciate that I'm all that's standing between you and free food and drinks at the venue, where you will get the opportunity to look at a thousand of your colleagues in their little black numbers. Um, and where you'll also get a chance, in the words of Ken Robinson, to watch grown men and women on the dance floor writhing uncontrollably off the beat, <laughs> and then go into their hotel rooms to write a paper about it. So um, I have even uh, less slides than Peter, but uh, those of you who know me well know that uh, words are very important to me, and in particular the, the precise meaning of words. Um, so I've got no slides, but I, I do have a speech. So I can manage your expectations. Um, my speech is 3,612 words long. It will take 22 minutes and 38 seconds. That means we'll be slightly over time, so if you need to leave now, now is your time. <laughs> You're missing out on some good stuff, eh? So for the last five years, in March and October, I find myself standing in the conference room of a Stellenbosch wine farm or a Santon hotel, looking out at 20 to 24 bright, young, and expectant actuaries. I say expectant, but perhaps many of them are thinking, really? Two days on professionalism? You see, the Actual Society of South Africa, that is, you, have placed into these hands and the six hands of my co-coordinators and the ten hands of our special guest presenters, the job and the responsibility of turning these individuals into professionals. And it is rather intimidating to be standing in front of you as the face of ASA professionalism, and I certainly don't want any of you to think that I'm looking down on you, although that is literally what I'm doing right now. <laughs> To put you at ease, I've experienced something that I hope most of you have not, which is the dreaded email from ASA saying, Paul, your CPD is well overdue. The opinions given in the speech are my own, but I will try to connect them to what I know is going on in ASA and globally through the professionalism course and my involvement in the new normative skills process and in the IAA. 
I appreciate that this session will help you to get those elusive professionalism CPD points, but I'm hoping that in addition to CPD, you will find my story interesting, informative, and amusing. And who knows, maybe together we can start to solve the world's problems. In the 23 minutes I've been given today, I would like to cover three things. Firstly, I would like to give a very brief overview of how the professionalism course is currently run and a couple of interesting findings from it. Secondly, I would like to meander off-piste for 10 minutes on integrity, leadership, obliquity, midlife crises, and the meaning of life. And thirdly, I would like to end off with a hypothesis that perhaps our view of profession, professionalism and our profession could be profoundly expanded. One, there are approximately 100 new qualifiers each year who have to attend a residential course held over two days and one night. The course covers what it means to be a professional, what is ASA, CPD and the disciplinary process, some case studies, volunteerism, a 25-year-old VHS video, the auditing court, <laughs> presentations from industry experts to highlight their challenges and professionalism issues, a, presenta a presentation by the president or elect on issues facing the actuarial profession. I have an interest in writing and the process of writing. And when I'm standing in front of the participants on day one, I often think about a passage from Stephen King's book on writing. He says, quote, I can't lie and say there are no bad writers. Sorry, but there are lots of bad writers. Writers form themselves into the pyramid we see in all areas of human talent and human creativity. At the bottom are the bad ones. Above them is a group which is slightly smaller but still large and welcoming, the competent writers. The next level is much smaller. These are the really good writers. Above them, above almost all of us, are the Shakespeare's, the Faulkner's, the Yeats's, Shaw's, Eudora Welty's. They are geniuses, divine accidents gifted in a way which is beyond the ability to understand, let alone attain." End quote. King goes on to say that there's nothing you can do for the bad writers, and the great writers don't need any help. But with some basic rules, or as he calls it, a toolbox, and a lot of practice, you can turn competent writers into good ones. And I suspect that the actual profession is not too different, although more of a diamond shape than a pyramid. At the bottom, you get the crooks. People who don't care about professionalism and who have a completely different ethical makeup to 99.47% of all of us. I have never met these people, but it would be naive to, to think that they can't exist. At the top, you get actuaries who, for whatever reason, have a solid moral compass, an inbuilt understanding of what it means to be a professional actuary, and have or quickly grasp all of the soft skills we try to teach them through the normative education process. I'm not sure if many are born into this like a Shakespeare, but I'm pretty sure that quite a few get there. And in the middle, there are the competent and the good actuaries from a professionalism perspective. And I think that the purpose of the professionalism course is to turn the competent actuaries into good actuaries and to give the good actuaries a framework on how they can continue to be good actuaries through case studies 
and shared experiences. For me, the most enjoyable and thought-provoking session on the course is what is now termed the word game. Through this process, the group comes up with the four words that for them most accurately describe professionalism or being a professional or the profession. To date, I've collected 142 unique words, 631 in total, and it is remarkable how consistent the most suggested words are. Integrity and ethics always make the list. Skill, expertise, competence, and trust are not far behind. The game gives us an opportunity to discuss what the various words mean and to understand that many of us have different interpretations of these everyday words. I think the game plays a vital role in ensuring that we have a common language in terms of professionalism, like we already have with exposed to risk and volatility and IBNRs. It also segues neatly into the concept that a profession consists of cognitive, normative and organizational elements, as set out in our Code of Conduct and the IAA Principles of, prof of Professionalism. And the game allows us to discuss words like money, a word that has surprisingly only appeared three times and never makes it anywhere near the shortlist. Power, prestige, and elitist. Finally, I also get to make a list of my favorite suggested words. Network, dynamic, humanity, leader, passion, empathy, and coffee. Yes, coffee. We also get to discuss various difficult or interesting situations, and we hope that on completing the course, the actors are more attuned to thinking about whether something is a professionalism issue or not. One of the concepts that Sam Marie, who presents the course with me, often uses as an example is the commercial insult. In our pure technical actuarial role, we often raise concerns about a concept or a product design, and an, accus an accusation that is made back at us is, you're not being commercial enough. You need to put your commercial hat on. Don't be so naive. It's a commercial world out there. And this is quite a hard accusation to counter because, yes, we are technical. And the insult attacks us at our very core. It is like someone saying to us, oh, you are such an introvert. Don't you realize that not all people think like you? So perhaps being a professional is having the inner strength to respond to the commercial insult. So that's the course. It happens, it gets good feedback, it serves a purpose. However, for a while now, I've thought that there's something missing, and I'll get back to that in a few minutes. Right now, I'm going off-piste. Two. I've been working at my current company for 15 years and 289 days, and it is the only real job I've had. Reinsurance is a niche business, on the one hand quite narrowly focused, but paradoxically where one gets a very broad view of the industry. By almost any commercial measure, the company has been extremely successful. We win business, we make money. We develop our staff, we have good client relationships, we get well paid. So if this is the case, why does it feel so difficult so much of the time? Why aren't we happy almost, almost all of the time? Why do we feel terrible when we make a rare mistake, when we don't win business, when a client relationship turns bad, and when the outcome is not as expected? 
I'd been pondering this question for some time when I came across a book called Obliquity by John Kay. The relevant definition of oblique is not expressed or done in a direct way. And the best way it has been described to me is a sailing boat that has to tack this way and that in order to go forward. Kay explains that in a world where problems are getting more complex, if we continue to try and solve them using direct rather than oblique methods, the outcome is never optimal. I will try to illustrate this with a couple of examples from the book. The first example helped me to understand why it is so difficult to get into, the grip, to get into grips with the concept of happiness. Kay uses the example of parenting. Quote, Studies show that people are happier when they are at work than when engaged in childcare. And researchers observe that reported happiness increases sharply when children leave home. Yet many people also say that bringing up their children was the best experience of their life. Perhaps under social pressure to applaud the experience of child-rearing, people say their children make them happy, even though that's not what they really feel. But a more likely explanation is that people who say that bringing up their children has made them very happy are telling the truth. And when the same people say that much of the time they spent with their children was not happy, they are also telling the truth. They are not contradicting themselves, because happiness is not simply the aggregate of happy moments. The determinants of happiness are evidently complicated." End quote. There is a detailed analysis of happiness in the book, and it has helped me contextualize my feelings in the workplace, and it has actually made me happier with my work. But that is only part of it. Kay goes on to discuss individuals like Buffett, Soros, Gates, and Jobs, who did not go out to make money. They did things they were passionate about, and commercial success was merely a byproduct. The same applies to Boeing, where the company was much more successful when the culture was an obsession with making the best aircraft in the world than when employees were told to focus on expenses and to manage the bottom line. He raises the point that direct solutions like maximize shareholder value are meaningless. How do you know that different, solutions during, different decisions during the year wouldn't have resulted in more shareholder value? And employees don't care about this. They want fair pay, they want challenging jobs, they want opportunities, and the latest generation of employees also seem to want to save the world. The problem lies in the fact that if we try to solve complex problems with simple and direct solutions, we will never know if we have achieved the goal, and we will have less successful businesses than we could have had. These arguments help me realize that there's little point in beating ourselves up about a problem that, with hindsight, could have been solved more optimally. The solution was not, noble, not knowable in the beginning, and as long as you approach a problem with integrity and passion, and with a desire to get the best outcome possible, what does it help to dwell on what you realize, you now realize, were better solutions? This does not mean that we should not learn from our mistakes and apply our learnings going forward. We absolutely should. But don't be unhappy about what has gone before. I'm standing here as an actuary, not as a business person. But this concept of obliquity leads back to my earlier point about something being missing from the professionalism course. And I think that Kay has helped me with this on two counts. The first is that he has made me realize that you need a framework to be able to understand complex problems. And conflicts of interest and balancing stakeholder interests are very complex problems. On the professionalism course, we have never taught the actuaries what ethics are. And I'm not sure that we can or should 
as surely we are too late for that. But what we can teach them is the process and techniques of how to tackle ethical problems, many of which, I suspect, are oblique. And if that is the, if that is the case, is it correct that ASA relies so heavily on someone like me for the content and presentation of the course? I never studied philosophy, psychology, or business ethics. Secondly, Kay has helped me to understand why it is obvious that, they, that it is easy to teach concepts of what is ASSA, CPD, and the disciplinary process. The reason is because these, concept, these are concepts that can be solved by direct solutions. ASSA is made up of council, which acts like a board. Under council, there are member committees and scientific committees, etc., etc., etc. But the concepts of ethics and integrity, understanding right from wrong, dealing with nuanced issues that you have never seen before. These can only be solved through oblique solutions. I only stumbled across this epiphany in the last year, and I have not yet changed the course material. Part of my problem, besides the obvious time commitment, is that it is quite daunting to take the first step. So I'm very pleased to be sharing the room today with one actor who has written extensively on professionalism and the normative skills process, and I've made a commitment to reread all of Mickey's rigorous academic literature. And another actuary on the stage who is interested in whether we are giving our actuaries adequate knowledge in terms of business ethics. So I'll be watching the development of Francois' research with much interest. And when I get my head into this, I'm pretty sure that my problem won't be that there isn't enough material on the topic, but that there is too much. I also want to make it clear that in my opinion, there is no doubt that ASSA is a world leader in terms of actuarial normative skills education, including the move to outcomes-based CPD and an extended cohort program, starting as early as first year varsity, which means that by the time the actuaries get to me, they would have been exposed to professionalism issues for several years already. We are strengthening the existing modules and adding sessions on leadership, strategic problem solving, and emotional intelligence taught by experts in these fields, often on actuaries. And I know that many other actuarial associations are eagerly following what we are doing on normative skills to see if they can copy us. So now I come to my third and final point. Is this it? Isn't there something more to be done? Or is it just a natural consequence that because I'm in my mid-40s, my MLC means that I look for extra meaning and purpose where there is none. I'm a proud actuary. I'm proud to call myself an actuary. We are a good profession. We are progressive and we are progressing. We are prepared to change. We are prepared to fail and improve ourselves. We have actuaries who are academics, researchers, regulators, technicians, leaders of companies. Actuaries who are prepared to go boldly where no actuary has gone before, into the worlds of banking, telecoms, financial advice, IT, data analytics. We punch above our weights on the international stage. But is that enough? I don't think it is. In his article, The Caring Leader, what follows expect of their leaders and why, Johannes Gabriel has the following to say, quote, in reflecting on the ethical standing of leadership, a useful starting point is to contrast leadership and management. 
The manager treats ends as given, as outside his scope. His concern is with effectiveness in transforming raw materials into a finished product. Managers represent a profession uniquely in tune with our times, a profession that has attained considerable legitimacy on the back of technique alone, claiming the immunity of those exclusively concerned with means and maintaining a stubborn indifference to the question of morality, politics, and ends. Leaders, however, are different. We expect our leaders to lead the way, to show moral courage, and to embody and articulate values beyond that of efficiency. We expect leaders to talk to us, to address our concerns, and to listen to us. Sometimes we expect, expect our leaders to see clearly, possess a certain conviction and resoluteness, represented by that overused and, ab and abused word, vision. We also expect our leaders to have moral courage, in other words, to be prepared to stand up for what they believe, against opposition and ridicule. We expect our leaders to care, not just in an impersonal manner about a project or about the bottom line, but for the organization and its people, indeed for each and every follower. In these regards, we expect our leaders to care not as professionals, but as leaders." End quote. As actuaries, we have outstanding technical skills. We are machines that have been built to solve problems, and we do it well. Sometimes I think we forget just how privileged we are. But it is because of this that my head feels like exploding when I think about the countless hours we actuaries spend because we want to or have to on issues like solvency too. What an immense waste of intellectual capital. <laughs> As a client said to me recently, if we develop products that people want, price them correctly, add a reasonable profit margin and monitor and manage the risk appropriately, what on earth do we need a multi-million rand regulatory industry to check that we comply? We should want to comply. We should be leading companies that want to comply. We should always be trying to solve the complex problem of making the whole financial system work better for the end customer. And I'm not sure that we have always done this in the past. In this regard, we should see ourselves as leaders, not just as professionals. But then we have to have moral courage. We have to stand up for what we believe against opposition and ridicule. If I had to summarize the strengths of the actuary into three points, they'd be as follows. One, we are brilliant problem solvers. Two, we think long term. Three, we have been taught and have an inbuilt belief that we have a duty to help people in society who have less knowledge and power than us, which gives us a legitimate air of impartiality. These strengths, even in South Africa, where we are way ahead of the curve in wider fields, are usually interpreted to apply to financial services. And the public interest we serve is usually interpreted as the policyholder. Why is this? A successful society is about solving problems. It is about thinking for the long term and delaying gratification. It is about helping people who have less knowledge and power. So why shouldn't we apply our skills to solving the problems in education and energy and governance and child and woman abuse and corruption and crime? I mentioned earlier that one of the insults that is often thrown at us is that 
we are not commercial enough. The words may be correct, but the implication is wrong. This isn't our kryptonite, it's our lightsaber. It is because we are not always commercial that we have the power to help society make enormous changes. Most actuaries I know did not become actuaries with money as the sole motivator. We get well paid, but there are easier ways of making money. And they did not go into it for a power trip. I think that as a group of individuals, as this society, as this profession, we are in a wonderful place to take on the mantle of servant leadership. There are so many things we do well as a profession, including our ongoing evolution and willingness to improve through self-inflection. And I would never want to change this. So most of us have to carry on what we are doing most of the time. But I have a hypothesis that with the input and guidance of a few people and, be, and by redirecting less than 5% of our energy, our profession could fundamentally change the way we see ourselves and the role we play in society. We could use our strengths to solve more and different problems than we currently do. I don't have the answers to how we do this. I'm not even sure what all the questions are. But I do know that it is a journey that I would like to walk, but I don't want to walk it alone. Thank you. Clearly the joke about double time, we're making it come true now. The, the last couple of things I thought I wanted to do is to give anyone who has a burning question out there the opportunity to direct it at this panel because I don't want anyone to have a burning question and not get the option. Is there anyone who wants to raise a hand and ask something? Ken, do we have a microphone? Uh, we spoke a lot about teaching ethics. It might not be possible to uh, make an unethical person ethical. Should the focus not perhaps be on identifying unethical behavior and the consequences for unethical behavior? And perhaps for Mr. Murray, you, you put up the number of hours that the various professions are teaching ethics. Uh, did you investigate the consequences of unethical behavior between the professions? Uh, okay. Um, not really. No, not yet. Um, uh, <laughs> uh, I just have this um, idea that we that we that we should be doing more, and I think that is definitely uh, one aspect where we that I agree that we also should be looking at. But at this stage, no. Anyone else? Imran and then Joanna. Oh, someone there too. Here's Imran. And I saw Joanna's hand going up as well. Oh, back there as well. Okay, you can bring the microphone this side as well. You can go there. Um, interesting presentation with respect to the ethics. Um, one of the things I remember when I was still young at university, I knew that you couldn't fail a module probably more than two times and continue being a student, you'll get academically excluded. Is it really ethical to have us student members writing exams on fifth attempt, sixth attempt? Shouldn't that be really an ethical a procedure or a manner? Because one, 
These people continue to pay exams five times in succession or even seven times. So ASA continues to have a nice cash flow, so whereas these people continue to fail. So I feel that if people fail so many times, so there's either two things happening. One, the study material perhaps is not sufficient enough, or ASA is not really playing a good role in helping the people pass. And I feel that we should not be allowing people to fail so many times. That sounded like a statement rather than a question. I, I, I think it might be a good idea to pick it up with the chair of the Education Committee. Um, you got the mic? Um, uh, okay, this is also uh, directed at uh, Francois, not so much a uh, question as a statement also. Uh, I just want to say thank you for giving the talk. I'm also glad you brought up the ethics thing. I think there's a, actually a big ethical underlay to a lot of the things that we do, like, and, and a lot of big ethical questions that come up in our work, line of work that don't always get explored, like, is, you know, is it ethical to model things that we, you know, where we don't really understand what's going to happen in the future, or uh, a lot of the times in the, when our, I recently came out of the exam system, and a lot of the times in the notes they always say things like, use your actuarial judgment, or there's a leeway for interpretation here, and whenever there's judgment, you know, ethics always does come into it. So I think um, I'm, I'm glad you brought it up, and I think there is a big scope to explore, but I think also the thing you mentioned about being too busy, um, it, it seems like the curriculum is already stuffed to the brim as it is. I mean, the question is, I mean, if you add it, you will you have to remove something, I guess? Uh, yeah, I, I think I've, uh, some of the academic colleagues have actually said that they, many of them are actually already including ethical discussions in the um, in the technical uh, uh, training and teachings, which is great. I think we should just see whether we don't want to actually, whether we shouldn't formalize it and just not leave it to a few individuals to do, but actually uh, combine our effort. And I really think that, that ASA should take, um, take the lead and, and, and give, give guidance in, in that regard. Uh, I agree with you. Jana, last question. Ooh, that's a Comments. Um, one, for, one for Paul. Um, what you were saying about oblique problems um, reminds me of what we say to our students when they come into fourth year and they start doing actuarial risk management, which is the first time they come across a subject where there's no right answers. Um, and it's very frustrating for students because how can there not be right answers? We've been preparing for three years and now we're telling us that there's no right answers. And um, Shivani will know the, the source of the quote, but we tell them that, that what we're solving now is these swampy problems where you are stuck in a situation where you can't move properly and you can't see the landscape properly and everybody's pulling you in all directions and you still have to solve this problem. And it's not as much fun to solve or it's not as easy to solve as when you're up in the highland and you can see everything. But, um, but those are not only the satisfying problems to solve, also the ones that we equipped to solve as a, because you know, the easy problems a computer or an accountant um, could solve. But, <laughs> um, but, but also those are the important problems that actually can change the world. So even though the, the swampy problems and you have to make these incremental oblique solutions, they are the ones that actually matter and actually change, change something. Uh, they're not reassured by this at all and they still hate us for quite a while um, after that and still don't like the fact that there's no answers. And then, Francia, just, just for you, um, maybe, I, I don't know if people know this, but, but so UCT program does include a, a semester course on, on business ethics and it's compulsory for our students to, to attend it, but maybe something fun that you didn't know is that un until a few years ago, um, that was an optional, that there was an elective course and, and the 
you could choose between two quite similar subjects, either business ethics or marketing. Um, so, <laughs> if you're employing ECT graduates from those years, it might be interesting to ask them which ones they chose, and then you know what kind of actuary um, you are in that time. <laughs> they really need to do both. Thank you very much. Okay, then um, there was going to be a couple more slides, but I've already decided to can those just to kind of share the context with the fact that um, the CPD pilot, which many of you may have heard about, which we ran with 30 people. We just wanted to share that effectively we've decided we need to run a much bigger one, which will be happening in 2016. So um, we're talking 100 plus people being involved to make sure we can stress this, the thing before we roll it out to everyone. So this thing will kick into high gear. A tender's been put out, which some of you may have been aware of from the actual society. And um, that's been discussed and landed. So I expect that there's gonna be some CPD sharing um, at the next convention. Um, on the new system. Um, and then I wanted to end with um, a couple of thanks because I think um, you will agree with me that it's been quite useful to have the panel here today. Um, from the moment I first um, heard Paul mention the word obliquity, it's been something that stuck with me as um, quite a deep thought. Um, thinking about something like, um, sure, it took me a while to get it right. It's normative ethics, and it's, um, it's about worrying about consequences, the utilitarian one that says you shouldn't tell your wife that you've had an affair. That at least wasn't part of applied ethics. Um, and then for, for um, Peter, he always makes me think about, about the way I, I apply my time and how I think. And um, maybe that's one comment I was quite keen to make about the topic that Francia also brought up about students who, who had an unfortunate exam event this time around. And probably the thing I thought the, the hardest about it, because I chatted to one of these students afterwards, was the fact that he said the weird thing was that as an exam question, he would never have gotten it wrong. But in real life, being in the situation, not thinking, it just kind of happened, and then suddenly he realized he'd already done wrong. And um, maybe that's a good challenge for us as we end on the note of ethics. It's when we get really busy and we stop thinking about what it is that we're doing that we can get into the slippery slope of rationalizing away things that are questionable. And it's when we apply some of the logic that I heard from from Peter around CPD as well, when something new comes, spend that time thinking about what do I need to do to get this right? Don't be under that time pressure we put on ourselves and then eventually rationalize away the wrong thing. Um, because I've always known that people probably only do the wrong thing because they're evil or because they made a mistake. And um, I don't think we have too many evil actuaries currently, but I think many of us are able to make a mistake and um, spending a bit of time thinking and spending a bit of time reflecting before we make hasty decisions is quite a good principle to have. Then I have an announcement to finish this off, but first I wanted to say maybe it's good to give a round of applause for the speakers. So most of you might know this, but let me quickly read it as it stands. The convention cocktail is taking place this evening at the venue Melrose Arch. Attendance required an additional ticket purchase. If you did book, you'll find your ticket in your name tag pouch. 
Please be sure to take your ticket with you in order to be admitted this evening. Unfortunately, it's sold out. There are no more tickets available. Coaches leave from outside the Sandton Convention Center between 6.30 and 6.45. You'll find the coaches on the ground floor outside the convention registration area in front of Exhibition Hall 1. The last coach will depart from the venue Melrose Arch at 11 p.m., so if you go beyond that, you're walking, and return delegates to the Sandton Convention Center, the Garden Court, Sandton City, and the Sandton Sun. If you'd like to take your own car, so that's plan B, um, which will cut on the alcohol intake, the complimentary parking available at the venue is there for you, and a map can be found on the convention app. Please enjoy yourselves. Don't drink and drive. Note we have an earlier start tomorrow morning at 8 a.m., and a headache will not be an excuse.